Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about components, talking about all the many ins and outs and what have yous of components, talking about components in interesting and unconventional ways, and we're talking to Julio Nasadio. Julio, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Gabe. Yeah, man, I'm excited. You're a guy that uh, Dan Peterson from uh, over at Mayday Games suggested. He's like, hey, you really need to interview Julio and talk about components because he's doing some really cool stuff, really out-of-the-box thinking-wise, uh, using boxes and using components in different kind of ways, have him on the show. And so I said, you know, that's a good idea. So I'm really glad uh, that you could be here. Thanks, thanks, Gabe. Yeah, when, when he said that, I'm like, that's really nice of him to say. And he was like, no, it's true. And I'm like, well... I'm I'm still pretty new at the whole board game design thing, but but thanks, I really appreciate that. That you know, a, a publisher that you know, especially Dan working for Mayday Games, it's a big publisher that he would say something like that about me. That was that was cool. Yeah, for sure. And Dan's not the guy. He, he's not the kind of guy that's just going to be polite. You know what I mean? Like no. like he is polite, but he's not just going to say something to say it. Like he when he says something, he means it. And so anytime oh, yeah. he says anything, I, I listen for sure because I know it's coming from a, a true place. You know, he's not just being nice or anything like that. And I started following you on Twitter, and I started seeing all the really cool stuff that you're working on, all the prototypes and really interesting games, and using the boxes in different ways, and using uh, all sorts of really cool components that you've kind of custom made or different uh, different things. You're you're using normal components, but maybe in a different way. And so I'm excited yeah. to talk to you about all that kind of stuff. But before we get into that, who are you? Give me your bio, how you got into game design, the games you've gotten signed, all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, my name is Julio Nasario. I am a new board game designer. I'm originally from Puerto Rico. Um, I have always been a video gamer. I have never really cared about board games. And about three years ago, I, when I moved to the States for, for my job here, uh, I didn't have any friends. So I'm a big extrovert, and I try to hang out in places where people hang out. And I just stumbled upon this uh, board game convention, and I'm like, this is really cool. There's a lot of board games out here. And and that's kind of how it, it all started, me playing board games. And um, I was about a year and a couple months ago, I, uh, I was at work, and somebody was talking about all these different types of trees. And he's talking about red maple, yellow pine, black walnut. And I'm like, I knew Catan. And I'm like, this, all these trees have colors associated with them. There's a game in here somewhere. And that's kind of how my first game, Timber Tactics, spawned into <laughs> light. And, and, and from there, it's just been uh, uh, quite an adventure, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And now, now, you're not a guy that just randomly talks about trees. Remind me what your job is. Uh, I'm a civil engineer. Okay, but weren't you, don't you work with forestry or the forest? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, cool. It wasn't some forest, random right. dude talking about random plants or trees. Okay, this <laughs> makes yeah, a more the, sense. We were at work, but you know, I, I don't know anything about trees. I don't know anything about you know animals. But somebody, a forester, was talking to me about these trees, and and that was very interesting. And that kind of spawned an idea. You know, that's always how things start. Yeah. With an idea, um, and from there, you know, it's like I said, it's been a, a roller coaster, and I designed a couple games and. I, I got two games signed so far and, and a couple under review, so it's 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 been a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. And I saw the picture you posted. How many games have you like really taken to completion in, in a very short amount of time? 
uh, to completion. Well, like to a um, place where you could say they're pitchable, like they're you're you could reach out to publishers. Um, I think around twelve or thirteen. Yeah, like that's that's a lot. That's a lot in a very short amount of time. And so you've gotten uh, like a crash course in experience in, in a very uh, quick time period. Yeah, I mean, listening to podcasts and watching videos and reading blogs has been. I kind of went all in on it. Um, like I said, I was a video gamer, and I don't I haven't really played video games much anymore because I've just been doing board game design. It's such a great hobby to get into. Yeah, for sure, man. All right, well, let's let's get a good little working definition. When when someone says components, it's not just dice and cards, although it is dice and cards. But what what when you think components, what do you think in general? Is that way we can kind of have a good little baseline about what we're going to be talking about? For sure. I mean, when I think of a component, it's just kind of uh, 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 something that you use to interact with a game. It doesn't really have to be dice or or shits or cubes or it can be really anything, um, and it's just the way that you use it to interact with your game. Yeah, for sure. I've seen some people use their rulebook as a component, right? Not only did it have the rules, but you could do something uh, to enhance the game experience with the rulebook, or like you've done with the box. I've seen several games use the box as a part of the game, part of the gaming experience, and so a component can really be. Pretty much anything, like any part of the game yeah. uh, that, that gets used or gets played during the game, I would say, uh, is a component. And so, yeah, and a big and, and a big part of it is is really for for me, like the box example. I I wanna I wanna be able to use all these components in a way that is not like, for example, the box is used to protect the game, yeah. of course. But like you said before, the box is just an integral part, like a very expensive component. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, well, if it's so, so expensive, why don't we use it more? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of how, how my first game that I signed was, used the box, and that's kind of how it all started there. Yeah, for sure. And I want to hear more about the games that you've you've worked on that, that you have signed in, in just a minute. But first, let's get into where do you find resources? Like, where do you go when you're trying to find components for your games? What are some of the, the places that you stop? Um, yes. Well, the first one, you know, every designer will probably know the Game Crafter has been a, a great resource to getting uh, conventional board game com- components, um, even if they're going to be used in unconventional ways, they're they're a great resource, very affordable, and I have really a lot of my components have come from there. And some other sites, you know, Etsy, Etsy.com has been very useful for uh, for me, especially if I want to get something custom made, uh, like laser cut wood or uh, and stuff like that. I, I I can get it from there. Um, you know, hobby shops, Hobby Lobby, Michaels that can get wood, wooden components there, rods and, and, and that kind of stuff. Have, those are a couple of places. And, of course, my household. <laughs> you know, you got sometimes people have a lot of stuff laying around, and yeah. especially when it comes to boxes. Uh, cardboard is a big component that I use, and cardboard is pretty much free when everybody has a lot of cardboard laying around somewhere. You moved at some point. And you've got boxes in your attic or something. So, Yeah, definitely. I found just random pieces of cardboard and a pair of scissors. You can make almost anything that you need. I needed a dice tower the other day. And so I just found some cardboard and I just put one together. I was like, here we go. I got a dice tower. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. whatever you need to do. Another thing I love about the Game Crafter is it gives you at least a general idea about the cost of, of components. And so if you're wondering, hey, my, my game has 200 dice in it. 
roughly how much would that cost? So you go on the game grabber, yeah. you put that in your their little system, and it's not going to give you the actual like manufactured cost, but at least gives you an idea of you know how these how much these things cost when they're all grouped together. And I found that to be super helpful as like a constraint and say, okay, I probably don't need my game to go over X number of dollars on the game crafter because it's probably going to be too costly to manufacture. And that's just another really helpful thing. For sure. Now, when we talk about your games, they're, they're a little unconventional, right? They, they do some different things. And so <laughs> tell me about some of these unconventional things that you've seen other people do and that you've done yourself that you're like, this is, that you think these are really cool ways to use the box, to use components, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, for sure. One, one of the first games that I saw having a use of the box is uh, Keith Baker's game Illimat. Um, it's a it's a kind of numbers and suits kind of game, but it uses the box to determine the state uh, of the game and the way cards interacted. So it was basically the theme. It was kind of like summer, fall, winter, and spring. And depending on what pl- the player was facing, depending on how the box was rotated, was... If it was facing summer to me, then the cards would interact a little differently, yeah. and I really like that. And that kind of spawned, you know, I, I was started thinking of different ways to use the box. So um, for my first game that I used the box, it's uh, the World Tree. Um, I was inspired by I was at a convention for work, and there was this Native American uh, descendant uh, talking about um, how in their culture. They have seven uh, directions instead of our normal uh, four, north, south, east, west. But they also have uh, the underworld, the earth, and the heavens uh, as all the other directions. And I thought, huh, there, there, there should be a way to represent that in a board game. And I just thought, you know, we could just have three different boards. One would be the underworld. Uh, one would be the earth and one the heavens. It's kind of the, the whole mm-hmm. verticality. Of the game and the world tree I used as an alternate theme because uh, uh, shamanism, it's a uh, it's a culture that also has uh, those beliefs, and you know you, the world tree is Yggdrasil tree of life, different ways of looking at it, and and the world tree is represented by the underworld, which is the roots of the tree, the earth, which is the trunk of the tree, and the heavens, which is the branches of the tree. And visually, it, it, it was a great way to represent it on the table as well. So what I did is that uh, I didn't, you know, you would think that you would put one board up top of the other and find it some way to connect them. But I just kept it, kept it simple and just put in the lower board on the table. I used the insert, which is another component that you can use yep. um, in a conventional way, as the second board and gave it some verticality there. And then I used the whole box, the bottom part of the box and the top part to make a higher level on the third level for that game and it, it at, fir- at first i thought you know it may be a gimmick because in reality you could just put all three boards next to each other right. and play the same game right but it was interesting because when i started playtesting the game people were having problems uh, visualizing the puzzle aspect of the game the game had a, it's a it uh, uses kind of like tetramino pieces, and you're summoning spirits as shamans on the world tree to ca- get like an area control element. And if you're on a middle board, the earth, and you summon spirits, and they're not supported on the board below, it is a grid, the spirits will fall. Hmm. And if the board was completely flat, people were having trouble connecting that mechanism 
with what you were seeing. So having that vertical component of having a, a lower board, middle board, and upper board would help people visualize it. Now, on the other end, if I went too much on the verticality, um, I, I tried out like really a really high upper board and a medium high uh, middle board, it was a disconnection. And it was hard to visualize the, comp the, the puzzle there as well. So it was interesting playtesting that game and making sure that people find the sweet spot in that vertical component of the game. Yeah, very cool. It kind of reminds me of what Ice Cool did, right? They had the box within a box within a box, and then you kind of take all the boxes out and you put them all together, and it creates this really cool big game, not really a board, but just anyway, game map. And you kind of use that uh, to play the game. And so you can do that kind of stuff, and you, almost like a little Russian uh, nesting doll, right, for your components yeah. to kind of collapse down into it. And so is that also what you've done with uh, – I saw that the the Pyramid game. that was it? Yes. It's called The Magician. <laughs> Pyramid of the Magician. There it yes. is. Then it got picked up by Brain Games, and it's got this like really incredible table presence where it's this giant pyramid, like all these thing, pegs sticking out and all that. Tell me about yes. that game and kind of how that, because it has a similar idea where it's like, you know, it's got the vertical you know, thing going on with the yes. box. Tell yes. me more about it. Um, so it's funny because, uh, so I had already met uh, Dan Peterson, by the, and I wanted um, to show him the game. And when we were at Protosphere Atlanta, he didn't know the game was mine, but he saw it from afar. You know, it's a two-foot-tall <laughs> right, uh, easy to board see from presence. Afar. <laughs> so he, was, he saw it, and he said to himself, that's a $150 game right there. Yeah. <laughs> and when he came to me, and he, he was just kind of skeptical. I was just playtesting the game at the time. And he said, how much do you think this is going to cost to produce? And I'm like, the game is just eight boards cardboard boards and i just used the box to support the components and the game would support itself mm -hmm. and i had another prototype with me i just show him the box which the box was 10 by 10 by by two and a half and all the game fit in there mm -hmm. because it was just cardboard yeah. and he was very surprised there with that so so in that game like i said i i used the top of the box as the base of the game and then the lower part of the box as a extension to to the game and then I kept the insert inside the lower part of the box and used the pyramid faces and I supported them on the bottom inside the lower box. It's difficult to, to uh, uh, express. Um, so so the, the, lower the lower part of the pyramid is inside the lower box. Yeah, so it's trapped there and you don't have to like glue anything or you know, tape exactly. anything. It's just supported. Exactly. And it just has like uh, key type holes where the where the pyramid just fit together really well. And then when I assembled the tower part of it, which is the top part, I would just kind of, it has some keyholes too, and you just put it on top of the pyramid. Because the pyramid has four sides, a tower has four sides. So they actually, it was actually supported very well, very well though, there. Um, and, and that one, there's, it, it has a couple other uh, ways of using, uh, unconventional ways of using components. I used... Uh, pegs you know like pawn pieces that i got from the game crafter mm -hmm. they, they're kind of like bowling type pieces the bowling pins you know they're kind of a little fat on the middle and then get, they get narrow narrower on the bottom yeah. so those pieces i use them to because the game is a ring tossing game that you're kind of trying to get the the ring on the highest peg because it has the most colors and symbols and then going down you have less and less and the vertical component of the game helps you actually because you have a limit on high, how high your hand can be to throw the rings. And the, the top part of the, that box component, base component, is your limit. 
So the, the pawns are used as pegs, really. And since they're narrower on the bottom, they just click into place on the cardboard. Yeah, very cool. And I love how the, the boxes on stuff, it actually plays a role in the mechanism of the game. So it's not just, like you said, it's not just a gimmick. It's something that actually makes sense. I saw a uh, game... Was it? I think it's Everdale. It has this a beautiful table presence. All this stuff looks amazing, but I don't know that like the beauty, the beauty, and like all the stuff going on of the giant tree on the table. I don't know that it actually plays a role. Maybe it does. I haven't played the game, but yeah, it just doesn't I, I seem to play a role in the game. But what you're saying is make it an actual component, not just make it a, a like a gallery, not just make it yeah, something. Yeah, it looks cool, kind of, oh, it looks cool, let's have it. Yeah, exactly. Not just something to hold components to just showcase them or make them higher than the table or anything, but actually use them in the in the playing of the game. That's a really cool thing. Now, do you like ever like print inside the box or you'll put like images or artwork inside the box to kind of use the inside? Yeah, well, so that's actually another way of using the box. There's there's just so many ways. The box is one of the, I mean, it's the most stable component that you can have. Yeah. And it's included in every game. You know, every <laughs> game that has a box is in there. So I, I, I have had, uh, I had a prototype. It's uh, I called it Project KR. It was a tower defense game that had a dice tower, but it was a multi-dimensional, uh, multi-directional dice tower. And I would use the box where you, the, the dice would just fall into the box and then it was printed inside, and depending on where the dice would fall, that's how the wave of the tower defense would come. So you, I did have kind of like a component printed in there that, that worked that way. I also have a game called Dice Dice Revolution. And, and, and yes, the first thing that came to mind, that game was inspired by the video game, yeah. uh, Dance Dance Revolution. And this is one of those games that people think, Oh, a mechanics first or, or uh, theme first, and this was name first. <laughs> I thought of the name, and I just I gotta design this game, yeah. um, and it came together very quickly. But I, I do have printed inside the game because you're, it's a dexterity game that you're rolling dice and you're trying to get the high score without throwing it inside the box. It's a uh, uh, yeah, that's a, another way to use it there. Yeah, I saw that one on Twitter. I saw some pictures and maybe a video or two of you playtesting the game. That seemed really cool because you've got like four different uh, setups or four. Di- basically, each player gets one part of the box and they're tossing dice in and they're trying to you know match up the icons just like the video game. And I was like, this is really cool. But uh, and going back to the directional dice tower, that's something I've been working on. I've got a, a kind of like a dudes on a map area control style game. And I was like, there just needs to be more games with multi-directional dice towers. Like that just seems like a cool concept. And but the way you've done it with the box is such a very inter- intriguing way to do it. And it's got to be a lot cheaper than you know having all these like big plastic printed component, you know, whether you 3D print them or whether you do like, yeah. you know the molded stuff or whatever, using the box makes a lot more sense because you can cut costs that way. And like you said, every game has a box anyway, and so you might as well use it to your advantage. True, true. And and it, it was a lot of fun designing that multi-directional dice tower. Yeah. It, it, again, I, I, I have that, that math mind, and I, I'm just kind of always thinking in my head, how would this work? And I keep work, keep thinking about it, keep thinking about it until I – think it will work and then i get it to the table <laughs> yeah definitely now any other unconventional uses for components that you've used that you've seen um yes uh one of my games ship she rescue was uh one of the contestants for the haba design contest and it, it, it actually won and and in that game i'm actually using the table as part of the components uh and i in this game it doesn't even have cards or anything it's all wooden components and I use the table as a friction surface for sliding the components. So it's a dexterity game too, 
But in this one, you know, you think dexterity, or you're flicking or tossing or something like that. In this one, you're using a secondary component to push the 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 other component. So in Chief Shear Rescue, you are a lot, you're either one versus all. So one player is the lion and the other players are the sheep. The lion has captured the lambs. You're trying to cap as the sheep. You're trying to rescue the lambs, but it's a trap, and the lion wants to capture the sheep. <laughs> so I use a slider, which is kind of like a wheel component that you put put it behind the sheep and you flick it or move it, and it'll slide the sheep along the table. Now there's a the mechanic is that you got to be very careful because if the sheep topples over, then that is you lose a turn next turn, and you got to get up. So it's one of those things that you got to be precise, but at the same time have the ac- accuracy to touch the lamb components. It's a simple game, but that's, you know, the table is another component that should be used a lot more because a lot of the games use tables to play. Yeah, that's a great point. And I actually saw your, congratulations, first of all, for winning the Haba uh, design contest. That's no small feat. I know they had a ton of people that entered. And I saw a video of your design, and it was so cool because you had that thing that kind of, it rolls out, slides out, and then it rolls back, which is really interesting. Like Just the, the way the physics work to move the sheep and move the different things around. I was like, this is just such a cool thing. And I saw uh, kids playing the game, and they were just having a great time, which is obviously yeah. why Haba wanted to, to pick up the game. But that's a good point. Like uh, a game like Flip Ships uses the table. The table's one of the main components in, in that game. And if you play on a, a different size table or, or a different shape of a table, it's going to change the game experience a little bit. And so it's cool to bring the, the table in, into the experience like that. Yeah, and a different surface as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because wood surface, yep. uh, you got glass surface, and you got that porous surface of conventions or a mm-hmm. tablecloth. That's definitely another way of, of integrating into it because they work differently. That's why some games have neoprene masks because yep. they need them because the way they, the friction works there. Yeah, or even with, with so many people now having like devoted gaming tables, and that has a very different surface than wood. If it's got the felt, it's got like the little padding in there to make it easier yeah. to pick up cards, well, that's going to change the way some of these games play. And, and like you say, yep. neoprene mats, that's a, the, the space game I've been working on for a while. You know, it uses neoprene mats as the, as the board space, right? And originally, I was going to just use cards, right? I had these little circular cards, well, about three and a half by three and a half. I got them from the Game Crafter, of course. And oh. they, you put all these planets out on the table, and so you could adjust the playing space by moving the cards. And so if you wanted to make the game a little easier, you put the planets closer together. If you make the yeah. game harder, you spread them farther apart, right? And so the table became the galaxy. And that was a really interesting way to play it. But one thing I ran into a playtest, and this is something to be aware of, we'll get into playtesting a little more later, but just something real quick, is I had a lot of people say, not a lot of people, I had a few people say, hey, this is a cool idea, but I have a really nice table and I don't want to flick a bunch of dice on my table. Like, I don't want to do, because it, like, they were a little more worried about, you know, the hard plastic dice landing on the table and doing different things. And so I started thinking, okay, well, maybe the neoprene mat's a way to go. And then also the cards had a tendency to slide. Like, if the dice slid into them instead of, like, toppling over and landing on the card, it would just slide the card around. It's like, well, did I land on the planet or am I just near it? It's like, well, okay, we need to fix that. And so you run into some interesting uh, drawbacks and, and challenges yes. with this stuff, too. Yes, even though sometimes dexterity games are simple, there's those those rules that you always got to consider. What happens if the component falls off the table? <laughs> right. What happens if I, in the top of my game, if I hit the component with the slider component? It's it's a things you have to consider for for sure. Yeah, definitely. And that actually brings up another point about components. Games like Catacombs that you know you're, you're flicking uh, discs or you're flicking dice, whatever game you know, whatever dexterity game you're playing. 
there are some people who just flick the crap out of things. They're just going to flick as hard as they can. <laughs> and, and they just want yeah. they just want to watch the world burn. You know, they just want to see chaos. And so I've seen games like Catacombs and others where they have to have this like giant component go around the game board and like be a wall, be a barrier, so that you know every disc, yeah. every die that you flick doesn't go off under the refrigerator or under the uh, couch or into the litter box or you know whatever, whatever you're playing uh, near. And that's something I had to consider when my own flicking game. It's like, well, what is that? What does that look like? And so I had to create a mechanism that basically, if you flick something too hard, then your opponent, whoever you were trying to attack, they get an advantage. And so, like, if you oh. basically there's a it's a it's a card that sits behind a die. And so, if you're flicking your die into theirs, that's the way you attack, right? And so, I put a card behind it, and then basically, if you flick it so hard that their their ship, their die goes beyond that hard. card then effectively they saw you coming, they jumped to hyperspace, and now they can put their die, they can put their ship anywhere on the board that they want. right? So you nice. basically give them a free movement to, to go anywhere they want. And so it causes you, kind of like in your game, you have to be precise. Like If you're not precise in the game, then it's going to give your opponent an advantage. And I think yeah. that kind of all comes into play, even making the table. Like If you have a different kind of surface right, that changes the way dice move or the way discs move and all that, it, it causes the experience to change just a little bit. It creates a little, maybe a little bit more fun, a little more tension when, you, when you've never played on this kind of a table before. Yeah, and if you can integrate some thematic experience with the game there, you know, what happened, you know, that, that's a good example with the going into hyperspace and all that. It's, it's, it's cool. It gets it more th- uh, thematic uh, flavor there. Yeah, and I feel like you've run into the same kind of thing, though. You, you start off with, okay, here's a problem. How can I create a rule or a fix or a mechanism for it that also makes sense with the game? Right, and so yes. what are some of the things that you've run into along those lines? Um, for sure, uh, one of uh, my games is called—it's a new one. It's called DNA uh, um, Inc. It's Develop New Abilities Incorporated. Okay. Uh, and in that one, uh, you are scientists, and I ha- you have this component that—it's uh, a double helix DNA strand. And and in this one, you are trying to uh, make different abilities for super soldiers to create super soldiers. And and I wanted to create uh, an experience of what happens if you substitute different uh, nitrogenous bases, which are the components that make a DNA strand. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would how would that affect your soldier? And you know you're kind of changing their genetic genetic structure there. Uh, but the when I was making the component, it, the game would the component would actually rotate when you're trying to insert it. So I tried to implement a way to. You know that rotation, the direction that the strand is facing, would affect your soldier as well. Um, it, it, I'm st- it's still a work in progress, but you know that's a that's another example there. It's just like with any game design, you always run into problems, and you just gotta figure out how to how to work over around it or or incorporate incorporate it into your game. Yeah, for sure. I feel like that's one of the main reasons we love game design. It's almost like a puzzle. Like how how am I yeah. going to make this work? You know, how am I going to put this thing together so not only does it work and it's functional, but it's also fun because that's a very difficult thing. Because there's lots of games that work that aren't any fun. You know, and so it's it's about taking all these conundrums and obstacles and going, okay, I'm going to fix this with this idea and fix that with that idea, and then we're going to put it all together and throw some cool cool art on it and print a bunch of copies and see if it sells. Right? It's just a cool process. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, any other ways that you, you you have used, like maybe typical components, like have you used dice in different ways or uh, you already mentioned pawns in different ways, but like anything else? Yes. Um, so my first game, uh, Timber Tactics, it, it started as a you know simple resource gathering game. You're kind of gathering different types of timber and you're constructing structures with that timber. So I started having that, you know, started developing that philosophy of what can I have in my game that is unique? 
because you know there's three thousand games coming out a year, uh, and you got to have you know you got to stand out somehow. If it's a unique mechanic, uh, unique merge merge of me- mechanics, unique theme, unique use of com- components, and in that one there wasn't really anything that really made it stand out. So I went with double use components, and that's something pe- people do that a lot. You know, you're using a component in different ways, but in this one. I I, w- I may have gone a little uh, too far, and and I use so the cubes were the resources, of course, but I divided the game into two phases. Uh, there was the the resource gathering phase, the prep phase, and then there's a war phase. So I made it like medieval theme, and you, and the first part of the game, you are everybody's gathering resources and preparing for war, and then when the resources run out, then everybody goes to war. And instead of having like a little components to represent your soldiers, I actually used the cubes because every player had a color associated with the cube color of the resource. Hmm. The cubes be the soldiers. Now, since there weren't any resources left, there was there was no resource part of the game on that section. So these cubes turn into soldiers. They're just pieces on the board that I would use as part of the game. And it, I and again, there's also double use cards that you would flip the cards. It's it's kind of a, a cool way to use components that way as well. Yeah, for sure. But multi multi use cubes. Yes, yes, you got to be careful because of course there's that that you got to make sure people don't confuse them because yeah. in that case you you have oh, okay these these cubes were yellow pine and now they're the yellow troops. It's, you got to make sure that they have that that break. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's talk a little more about custom components. How do you create your custom components? Like, do you have any tips and tricks, is things you figured out that work better than others? Any uh, advice on like specific tools, anything like that? Um, yes, for sure. Um, cardboard, like I said earlier, cardboard is definitely the way to go. It's the cheapest way to go. Um, now, tools that can help you uh, modify the cardboard more easily, uh, definitely a, a, a cutting mat, uh, a seal, self-healing cutting mat. You can get one online for like $20. Um, and an exacto knife. Uh, exacto knives are very sharp uh, tools, very dangerous. So be careful. <laughs> uh, but they are super useful for cutting cardboard. Um, and you like you're trying to make tiles. You know, obviously sometimes it's hard to make tiles from from paper. Uh, paper is usually the first component to go to if you want to make a game. But cardboard gives you that uh, sturdiness to a component. And of course, you can use a scissor to cut, but if you're trying to make 25 tiles and you got to make three games, that's 75 tiles. That's going to take you a long time with a scissor. So if you get an X-Acto knife, it's just easy to cut that way. Um, another one, um, when you're making wooden components, wood is another great one, and it's definitely a little uh, more expensive and harder to work. But you could use um, uh, drill. So for that game, uh, DNA Inc., um, the strand is a rod, a wooden rod, and I drilled in holes in a spiral fashion to make the the DNA strand. And it was it took a, some time, but again, it's it's just using the, those components the right way. Um, there's also one that I can't live without, and this one's you know it doesn't matter if you're doing custom components or not. If you're doing cards, uh, uh, cutting uh, guillotine cutter. That that has been instrumental to me getting all my components done on time because it is just so easy to cut cards that way. 
again, scissors do the, the job, but if you got a guillotine cutter, it, it just makes it so much faster. And it's one of those things that you don't even have to, well, you got, you got to look at the thing so you don't cut off a finger or anything, but you can usually like listen to a podcast and stuff like that where you, where you're doing all this. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely a, some, some uh, tools that I have used that have been uh, really good. And of course there's a, you know, you've got glue, like, um, Glue has been really good when you're using, especially when you're using cardboard. You want to have something printed on the cardboard. So you just have paper and just glue it on the cardboard and it works really well. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I've, I've found works really well, it's kind of a happy medium between cardstock and cardboard, is chipboard. And you can get chipboard fairly inexpensive on uh, Amazon. And it's it's very similar to what's used in, in actual board games, right? They, they use yeah. chipboard for, for those. And this is kind of a thinner version, but you can cut it. You can cut it with X-Acto knife, cut it with scissors, and then glue the, the paper or the cardstock image or whatever onto it. And it's worked really, really well f- for me as far as tiles or, or uh, tokens and different things like that. You use chipboard at all? Yes, yes. Uh, here's a tip. if you So chipboard is actually made, sometimes made out of two different uh, types of, of uh, uh, poster board. Yep. Um, so if you use an X-Acto knife and just cut it slightly where it just cuts the first layer of the cardboard and then you put tape on the other side that's not cut, you can just fold it and it keeps folding that way and it doesn't break off. So it's a good uh, component to use to make custom boards hmm. um, and bifold boards and all that. If you There's a lot of resources online. You can check it, uh, ways how to make uh, boards. You know, it, it's cool to use uh, different printers to make boards, but they're expensive. You know, a board can cost you $50, $60 and a uh, chipboard can, it can cost you $5. Yeah. Absolutely. Actually, something I saw today in the BGDL community Facebook group is a, a guy, he used Vistaprint and printed a banner, a vinyl banner, and he printed four game boards on it and then ordered, you know, had Vistaprint printed up and send it to him. And then he just cut them all out. And so he has these like really nice roll up, you know, roll out boards that have great, they're great color. They're you know good oh, yeah. quality. And I was like, that's a really good idea. You just print a whole bunch of those and then, you know, it gets your house, cut them all up and you've got a whole bunch of prototype boards. I was like, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. And, and again, going back to the et- using Etsy, there's so many uh, people out there that have tools to ma- making stuff like banners, vinyl and uh, plastic and wood that it's it's very affordable these days to do those kinds of uh, components for sure. Definitely. Now with Etsy, do you like tend to like contact people and say, "Hey, this is what I'm thinking. Can you make this for me and I'll pay you?" Or or like, what do you do when, when going on Etsy? So I just go through uh, different uh, providers or uh, stores and see what kind of products they're they're offering. They usually have pretty generic products, and and if I think that they and I just ask, like you say. So I usually have measurements for my components, and I say, okay, this is what I need. I need it this thick, this wide, this long, um, and maybe this shape. And if I just send you the file, can you do that? And and they're usually up for it, and can you give me a quote on it? It's pretty straightforward. It's just having a conversation with, with a person online, and, and they're it, again, they're very affordable. A piece, you can get it as, as cheap as 20 cents a piece, and for, for especially for... Pyramid of the Magician, those rings that I used, they, I used uh, uh, laser-cut wood for those rings. And and I used that, and, and I used Etsy to get them. Yeah, very cool, man. All right, have you gotten into, like, 3D printing at all and, like, done any, any work with 3D printed components or anything like that yet? I have not. I have not. Um, I actually um, have a, a, 
designer here in Asheville, part of the game designers of North Carolina, that he actually works for a company that has uh, 3D printers, like industrial ones. Oh, wow. And he said that if we can get the filaments, you know, as a group, we can just print out whatever we want. Sweet. And, you know, it's good to have that resources resource in hand. So, but I, so far I haven't. One that I really want to use, and I have the components for it, I just haven't had the idea yet, it's uh, a magnetic components. Mm, yeah. uh, that's definitely one thing I want to use. I just, I'm still kind of thinking about it. Yeah, for sure. And this goes back to using the box. I've seen so many people have a magnetic box that kind of folds out, and then they use that as the game board or as the score track or you know, use it in different ways as a component in the game. It's just a really cool yeah. way to use the box uh, as well. And then with um, Kurt Covert, he came on the show not too long ago, the, the game Tower of Madness. It uses a magnet to create that giant tower, right? It has this fold-out yeah. thing, and then it mag- it's magnet. Magnetized, it's magnetic, and it sticks together to create this really cool tower, and it just oh, it looks really awesome on the table. And so, yeah, magnets are also. I've seen some people try to do like minis, like a miniature, like war game kind of thing, where you can go upside down and you can go sideways. It's like this, like a futuristic battle sport kind of thing, where you can go, you know, run uh, on the yeah, walls and things like that. Yeah, I remember. It's kind of like, like a, yeah, it's kind of like a cube yeah. type thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah, there's again, it's it's a very versatile uh, versatile component. So it's just kind of thinking of ways to do it. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's talk about playtesting. This has got to be one of the most difficult aspects of using these custom components, these components you're just kind of making out of cardboard because they're not exact. It's not, you know, perfect what the factory would make or what, you know, an injected mold of plastic or something like that would do. And so, like, what, what's been your experience with playtesting these kinds of games and what advice would you give? Um, I mean, just I, I would say just treat it as a, any game. Now, when you are, of course, creating these components, you gotta, you're of course gonna have the problem of, of tear, of wear and tear. Uh, for Pyramid the Magician, over so many playtests, 50 playtests, I started having the problem of uh, the pegs would just not stuck as much because you were basically stretching the cardboard and unstretching and, and all that. So I was having the problem with that. But um, one, one thing for sure, you are limited. So at least, you know, with any other prototype, you can have, you know, printed or written uh, on paper, and, and people give you a pass sometimes. So it, I should be the same way with uh, <laughs> custom components because they're obviously not perfect. Um, but if people – make sure you, you, you hear what people say regarding that interaction when you're playtesting. Because if they're talking about, oh, it would be better if you make it this way so it stays more stable this way, then that's, you know, that's, that's good feedback, but it's – you are in the right direction but where they're not really thinking about is it hurting their interaction with the game. Hmm. Um, I have a game. It's called uh, Emwi, E-M-W-3. It's a tile laying game. It doesn't use the box, but it uses one tile and one type of tile only. And it's in shape of the character M or E or W or 3. Yeah. It depends on the d- directional perspective right. of the player. So in that one, I'm actually working on a new version of it where I'm using translucent tiles for for that specific tile. And and it's it's kinda works on how you're looking at things through the translucency. And of course when in a component it doesn't work as well because you don't have the right translucency or the right color printed on the board. Um, so that's been limited but the game has been working really well. I'm really excited about that one. Um, and it's just you you, it's just limited to currently your skills, really, on how you're making things and, and all that. But at the same time, 
you you just gotta give yourself a pass. If the game is working where people are enjoying it, and their feedback is usually with you know maybe the mechanics that should be worked out this way, or or the theme interaction and stuff like that, then then I think you're in a good direction. Yeah, definitely. I think anytime you're going to do something like this, though, it's going to add one extra step or one extra stage of playtesting. Because not only do you have to playtest the actual game, is it good, and is it fun, is it balanced, all that kind of stuff, you also have to playtest, does the box work, right? Does the box sit the way I need it to sit? And do these components line up the way I need it? Like, you have to kind of basically test the components and then test the actual game. And have you found that stage can be a little frustrating? I mean, it's, it's kind of fun because it's almost like arts and crafts. But have you found that stage to be frustrating as, as well? Um, a, a little. Um, I, I would say that one part that you're always thinking about is that is it going to be able, is are you going to be able to produce it? You know, is the publisher going to be able to produce it in a way where it's going to be affordable right. uh, to buy and you know it's going to make sense for them? Um, so that's definitely one thing that I always keep in mind. That's why with Pyramid the Magician, you know, it's not very intricate. It's just eight boards put together on my prototype, and they're. You know, there should be a way. I've actually been develop, doing development uh, with that, and I found better ways of integrating that, that in, and it doesn't do much wear, wear and tear on the box. But, uh, yeah, that's definitely one thing that kind of frustrates me sometimes is just I like this mechanic and how it works with the box. I just don't think it's going to be worth it to produce it. Produce it. it just, I need a, a little more. So that's definitely... Something I I'm always thinking in my in my head of I call it internal playtesting. Yeah. So you usually have ideas and and you think about the game and then prototype it and do self playtesting and then public playtesting or and at one point you may go back to ideas and and do it all over again. But I like to do idea and internal playtesting. Mm-hmm. Just playtest the game in my head and how it's gonna work and then do do idea again and internal playtesting and that that's one thing that has definitely helped me on creating my games and getting to a better state so fast. Yeah, for sure. I'm in the same boat. I, I love just sitting and my wife is like, what What are you doing? Like, where, where are you? Are you Are you with us? And I'm like, no, I'm not with you. I am playing this game in my head. And I've played four games so far tonight and just leave me alone. And it's, and it's not working. It's not working at all. And that's why I have this like, ugly look on my face. It has nothing to do with you or our relationship or our family or anything like that. It has everything to do with like this game does not work in my head and I got to figure it out. And so, But at the same time, I feel like it's helped me when I finally do get to that prototype stage, I am so much further along. And, oh, yeah. and another thing I'll do is I'll take the components that I've got. All right, in my head, I say, okay, I need these cards, these dice. This is kind of my idea. And I'll, put the, I'll just throw all the components on a table, and I'll just stare at it and just stare for 30 minutes, you know, an hour. I'm just staring and, like, playing out how these components would go together and how they would work. And on my turn, I'm going to do this, and I've got this many actions, I can do that, and just playing it out over and over and over and over again. And that way, by the time I get to the actual prototype, it's way further along than, you know, had I just – started and hoping for the best and so i feel like that's a really good way way to do things yeah and and of course everybody's got limits on on how much you can really think over what's going to happen for uh pyramid the magician i actually the original prototype the the pyramid was actually taller but the slope of the pyramid was was a higher slope Mm -hmm. so it, it the the rings were weren't staying on the pegs because it was so steep so i had you know, I hadn't think of that, thought of that, so I had to remake the prototype and make it a shorter pyramid, but the slope was less. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I've found a lot of success with is, all right, I'll play the game out in my head, and I'll just play out one aspect, and then I'll prototype that, and then I'll have that sitting on the table, and I'll go, okay, now how does that play into something other? 
and another piece of the game, another mechanism. Okay, and I'll play that out in my head a bunch. And then I'll prototype that. And so I prototype the game in phases. It's almost like eating an elephant. You're just one bite at a time <laughs> and just kind of getting there eventually. But like, it's overwhelming for a lot, a lot of times for me to think, okay, I'm going to make a board game. Like that is, that's a huge undertaking. Like that is a, unless you're making just a little quick roll and move game, like it's, it's a lot of different moving parts and you know, combinations and different things that go together. And so I'll make one part, play it in my head. All right, make another part, play it in my head. Make another part, play it. And eventually I'll have something that I can say, hey, uh, does, you know, does somebody else want to play this? You want to help me out with some playtesting and we can play the whole thing together and then we can go from there. But I found a lot of success uh, doing that. And when, you're, when you've got games like this that use the box or use components in different ways, it's really helpful to kind of go piece at a time just to make sure it works. All right, does this work? Is yeah. it enjoyable? Is it fun? Okay, it's not. Let's do something else. As opposed to like spending hours or weeks or however long it takes making this thing and going, man, that was a big waste of time. <laughs> right? And have to move on yeah, to the next yeah. thing. Yeah, and that happened to me. Another game I had, um, Tulips on Windmill Island. It was a vertical tile placement game. Mm. And I, you know, in my mind, it worked perfectly. Right. And it wasn't a unique mechanic, but when I got it to the table, it was just so finicky. Mm-hmm. It was finicky to get those uh, tiles to be vertical and and kept keeping vertical. It was and I just had to. The game didn't last a week. You know, it, it was a good idea, but I it just didn't work that way, the way I thought it would be. Yeah, for sure. Now you just mentioned a moment ago, like manufacturer costs. Like, what's this going to cost to publish? And I think that's that's something you need to really think about early on. Are you wanting to just make a game because it's fun and you had a cool idea and you've got these cardboard pieces and you throw it all together? Or are you wanting to make a product that a publisher is going to pick up and sign and have in a store one day or you know get on Kickstarter or something like that? That's a big decision to make early on, especially with these kinds of games that very well, like, like Dan was thinking, hey, that's a $150 game, right? Very easily could be, depending on the way yeah. you use these components. And so what have you found? Give me some tips and tricks as far as like making sure the manufacturing cost stays down, like how, how to make sure that my ideas don't kind of get out ahead of me to where it's going to be a $300 game, $200 game that no one's ever going to pick up. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I would say quantity is always a, a good uh, reminder. You know, if you've got, when it comes to boards, uh, of course, with the box, you know, it's good to ha- use the box because the box is going to be there anyway. Right. But when you have boards, how much um, square inches of board am I using? You know, a, a normal a normal board usually is you know 30 by 20 inches, um, and that's pretty standard. But what if I use, I want to do a modular uh, map, but then I need uh, 15 10 by 10 pieces. Mm-hmm. They'll fit in there, but they're, you know, 15 times 10, you know, it, it turns out to be a, a lot more than, than a normal board. It's just kind of thinking about that quantity. Is always like with uh, cards as well. You know, you if you have 100 and, 104 cards, is it 108 cards, uh, you know that's obviously uh, less expensive than having 500 cards. Right. So I was kind of think of of uh, quantities of how mu- how many components do I have? How many components should I have? And you talking about having that game crafter uh, resource where they at least give you a, a reference of how much it's gonna cost is really good. Um, and of course, when it comes to production of custom components, um, are you gonna be are you gonna have custom cut cardboard so it fits together and makes all these different types of pieces how much more expensive is it's going to be that than just having a uh, 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 two-dimensional cardboard because that's another thing with uh, i'm very careful careful with is that is can i can i do this idea that looks really cool on the table 
it, it has a lot of table presence. But can I do something like a deck of cards that can re- completely replace that? Right. I actually had a, a that that problem with another game of mine, uh, um, uh, Forbidden Forgotten Skylines. I had this cube, and that represented like a desert, and I had these strips of cardboard inside, and you would remove them and kind of click them into the cube, and they represented different buildings. You're kind of uncovering, uh, digging out a city, mm-hmm. and at the end you would have a skyline of a city. It was really cool, uh, but I when I was thinking through the process and after playtesting it, I was like, if I did a deck of cards and just put different decks on a grid. I could do the same thing and just dig in the the buildings that way. So you you got to be careful because if you can just make uh, the same game with a cheaper way to do it and it has the same experience, then you just got to go that way. Yeah, for sure. Like we were talking about earlier, is this just a gimmick or is this actually part of the experience? Is this part of one of the mechanisms in the game? And also you have to be aware of like the weight of the game compared to how much it's going to cost. So like if you've got a game that's got all these really cool custom components, the way you, you know, use the box and all this stuff comes together, and it's going to be a 75-hour game. Okay, that, you know, there's lots yeah. of games for 75 hours. But if it only takes 15 or 20 minutes to play, it's like, well, maybe that's not going to work out so well in the actual market of, of products. True. And so it's another thing just to, to kind of be aware as you add more and more stuff or more unconventional things. Now, when it comes to pitching one of these games, what has been your experience? Like, you've got two games signed, you've got a bunch of games under review right now. And so what's been, what would be your advice to somebody that's going to pitch a game that uses these components in unconventional ways or uses custom pieces, that kind of thing? Well, first of all, you got to convince the publisher they want to see it. <laughs> right. And when it <laughs> well, the first thing you just got to do is make sure you take pictures of it. Yeah. You you take pictures and have a sell sheet and just contact the publishers through email. I always like to uh, contact publishers in advance, at least two months in advance before a convention, and send them an, an email with, uh, with my sell sheet. And if they ask for the rule sheet, have it ready. I don't want to have... You know, just send it because I think the game is ready and not have the rules ready. And they may be interested and then ask me for the rules. And uh, I don't have the rules. Sorry, I gotta, I'll get back to you on that. Now, you got to have everything ready for sure. And when it comes to games that have a visual presence, having that visual component to your pitch helps a lot. And, of course, when you're in a convention and you're doing something like publisher speed dating, that definitely helps a, a lot to have some, some table presence. And of course, you got to be careful that it's not a gimmick because that may be a turnoff to publishers where, oh, I was really excited to see this, but then after you pitching it to me, it's just something that I could do with a deck of cards. Right. Um, and so, so of course, and, and another thing is you got to make sure you do your research on the publisher. Uh, you could, I mean, when I got Pyramid Dimension signed with Brain Games, you mentioned they had Ice Cool and they were using box inside of a box inside of a box as part of the game. And I saw that. And this is one of the publishers that I'm not, I didn't actually follow my example. I did send a pitch, an email to them. They didn't respond. So at Origins, I, I just went to their booth and gave them a sell sheet and said if they had the time, you know, very respectfully. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll take a look at it. And it's funny because that game was like they saw it that day and the next day they said they wanted to sign it. So, <laughs> That's awesome, man. Congrats. <laughs> that, that, was, that was very exciting. Um, but But it's for sure one of those things that you just got to find the right publisher for your game and see what have they done in the past. And sometimes you may be lucky where, you know, publishers, they have usually they have some specific games that they're looking for. But sometimes you don't know it, but publishers are looking for different types of games. You just don't know that they change that direction. Um, So you you just got to watch out for that. 
Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of publishers that might see your game and go, oh, okay, I like it, but we could change, you know, change a little bit, put a different theme on it. And then, and then all of a sudden it does fit in their line. And so it's kind of a, it's a tricky thing, man. Finding, finding a publisher that like it fits in what they want to do, right? It, it can be difficult. And then also figuring out, is this something they want to do? Like if it's a, a company that hasn't done this kind of stuff in the past, you know, do they want to? It's, it's a difficult thing. And so anytime a person gets a game signed, I am very impressed. Like, well done. That is a no small feat whatsoever. Even with so many games coming out, it is such a difficult thing yeah. to find the right. Because it's, it's all about timing. It's about the relationship. It's about so many different things coming together to just work out the way they need to. And it's, it's a difficult thing. And so anybody listening to this that's frustrated, you're, you're not alone, first of all. But it's, it's a very tricky business to get a game signed. And then it's even trickier to get it published. Like you're saying, a lot of your games aren't going to yeah. come out for a while, a year or more. You know, cause just, just because that process takes, uh, takes so long to, to come to fruition. Yeah. Now, do you have any other games that we haven't mentioned so far that use components in a different way or you know, have interesting ways of doing things or anything like that? Um, yes, I actually have uh, another game that I'm working on. It's the newest one. I haven't even shared anything on Twitter, and I don't know when this has come out, so I may have shared it by then. <laughs> it's called uh, Vines. Uh-huh. And in this game, I have uh, special uh, wooden tiles that actually have notches in them. And you, I, I'm still working out the mechanics, but you are basically connecting these components, notches by notches. But you're starting, everybody starts out at the wall of the box because going back to the box being the most stable component, you are actually have that base and you can grow out. Mm. You're growing your vine yeah. out and stretching out different ways and is supported by the box. Very cool. Um, and, I, and, and that one, I, I'm still working out the mechanics, but I'm pretty excited. I, already got, so I took some work, again, going back to checking out the components and how they work. I already did that and I'm so excited to, to work on that one. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, what is it about your brain that you're like, I'm going to make these like really cool intricate games that are, you know, not necessarily intricate in their the way they play, but intricate in like the the way you use components. Is that just kind of how your brain works or do you just wait for those ideas? Like do you have do you have a bunch of deck builder ideas that come along and you're like, "No, nah, no, nah, not going to do a deck builder. Not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do a roll and write. No, no, I'm going to do something else." Like or or like how does your brain work? Um, well, it's just I've always loved math. Math has been since I was little, I, I've always loved. I always wanted to be an engineer since I was like five years old. And it, it, a lot of people, you know, they sometimes have trouble with math. But um, for me, it's it just something that I've loved forever. And and physics, understanding, taking my physics classes and uh, in college has definitely helped me understand the physical uh, interaction of those components. And 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 that's just. I, I don't know. I just kind of I'm, I'm walking around again, go, working with the Forest Service, kind of walking in the woods gets me in that Zen where I'm not thinking of anything, just kind of trying to get to my destination. Yeah. And and your mind just goes in different ways. And and it has I, I, I love I love it. It's just one of those things that I again, I just I, I started in last year and and I just stopped doing all my other hobbies. Yeah. I play video games my whole life, and I haven't played a video game in in a couple weeks, because I just love this industry so much, and it's been so welcoming too. Because you would think that a creative industry like this one would be competitive in a way, you know. You think of it that way with music, and uh, with art, with photography. They're all very competitive business uh, industries, but in this one, everybody's just so welcoming, and yeah. because obviously people know that you need other people to play test your game and get that feedback. But I, it, that part of it has been such an awesome 
uh, thing that I just loved and, and everybody's been great. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited to talk to you a little bit more about this in the bonus round. We're going to talk about getting inspired and the, the ways that you get inspired and the things that kind of lead your mind to, to go from idea to game. So I'm excited to hear more of your thoughts on that in just a little while. But first, any kind of closing thoughts? What advice would you give somebody who's maybe thinking about custom components or putting together unconventional style games, using the box, anything like that? Well, one of the things you were saying, just get get components together and work through them. You know, think of like a child. Yeah. You know, when you're a kid, you're just so creative and you have this imagination of you have this cube and the cube is actually a star. And then you've got this this uh, glass of water and it's the sun. And just kind of th- play with those components if you're more of a physical uh, person uh, that way. But one thing I, uh, I've been doing since I started is share your game. Uh, you know, get your games out there and, and see what people think of it. Um, if people get some interest, then maybe you can contact that person. Hey, can you play test my game? Um, yeah, don't, don't be scared to share what you've got. Um, I've got one game. Um, this is one of the games I got under review um, that I actually contacted the publisher before the game was ready because I thought the game fit the publisher so well that I wanted them to play test the game to get feedback from them. I was very clear that you know I want just to play test and I want to get feedback because I want to pitch it to you in the future. Mm, that's a really and cool And they were idea. like, yeah, and 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 they actually well they had seen the game and they were actually interested in it, so that definitely helped me get it that way. And when I got feedback from them and you know I worked on it and and now it's uh, with them and we'll see what happens. Yeah, very cool. And it's interesting the world we live in now. Social media is such an easy thing and, and everybody's on it. But it's such a cool way to not only get feedback, right, as far as ideas and, and kind of talking about different things, but also like using design journals as marketing, right? So people kind of see the process and they kind of see you along the way. And it, it helps out like leading up to a Kickstarter. It helps you get more email subscribers. It helps you uh, get more people excited about the game because they've kind of seen it yeah. from the beginning. You know, it's, it's almost like uh, you, you see a kid grow up. You know, you, you saw the picture as a baby and then you saw him as a toddler and you saw him as a you know young kid. And, all, and you kind of see him grow up and you feel like, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're not really part of his <laughs> life necessarily, but you, you kind of feel like you are because you've, you've watched him grow up. It's the same kind of thing with, with board games. And as many people think their game is a baby you know they don't want anybody telling their baby's ugly and all that i guess maybe it fits a little bit better uh, anyway but that's, that's yeah really and and, cool. and you get motivated as well yeah oh, you, know, absolutely. you get that response you, you you're like motivated to work on it more you know they got so many people interested i want i got to keep working on this definitely and it helps keep you accountable too because you know when people yeah. say hey what, what happened to that game it's like oh yeah i, I need to work on that right <laughs> it kind of helps push you uh, and maybe get a little bit more more motivated well, Julio, yeah. man, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with all the Fit 11 games you got working on right now and, and all the cool ways that you're using boxes and, and components and uh, good luck with the games getting signed and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you, Gabe. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?